Welcome to Women, Conscription and War, a podcast series focused on the actions, motivations and experiences of Melbourne women in the anti-Vietnam War and anti-conscription protests between 1965 and 1972. In case you haven't listened to the introduction to this project and where I give some history of the Vietnam War and conscription in Australia, a few things to keep in mind. First, this is in no way an attack on Vietnam veterans. I am the daughter of one myself. This is filling a gap, not opposing or challenging. Second, I don't necessarily agree with everything my interviewees say, so don't get angry at me for reporting their views. Third, I don't always give the name of the person who's speaking when I use excerpts from interviews. They're always credited on the website, which you'll find at womenconscriptionwar.com. You'll also find complete footnotes for the other work that I've used. Lastly, please note that I have edited these interviews for use in the podcast for clarity and to really hone in on the relevant ideas. I think it was because we made our message clear. We spoke about what was wrong with forcing young men who couldn't even vote old enough to vote to go and fight in a war in a country where people didn't even know where it was. This entire project began because of Save Our Sons, or SOS. I found a documentary about Save Our Sons in the library of the high school where I was teaching, and I was immediately captivated by these women many of whom protested for the entire eight years of the Vietnam War. Five of them went to jail for 11 days for their actions. This episode includes interviews with two of the women who were jailed, Jean McLean and Joan Coxedge. You'll also hear from Cece Cairns, as well as Tony Dalton, whose mother Dorothy was very involved in SOS. We'll start with Jean McLean, who is generally acknowledged as the leader of Melbourne's Save Our Sons group. When I was teaching this period, Jean came to speak to my students and I was completely entranced by her stories, as were my students. I spoke to women that I knew. I was a young mother. I was doing a pottery class and I spoke to the women in the pottery class and a couple of them had 14-year-old sons and they said, God, this could affect their children. And, and they were pretty upset. And, and, and so I said, well, let's have a meeting, call a meeting, get as many people that we know together and see what we can do. I mean, I've never done that sort of thing before and nor have they. But anyway, we called, we had a house meeting and I invited a minister of religion called Bruce Silverwood, who was the, the Uniting Church had just, uh, combined with mm. the Methodists and Presbyterians. I think he was Methodist, I can't mm. remember, I think he was. But anyway, he came to the meeting because he was, uh, you know, spoke out about peace and this sort of thing. And I think he had a letter to the end or something like that. And so I asked him to come to tell us what to do, how, how to oppose mm. things, not religiously, but just as people. Anyway, he suggested to hire a hall in the city called the Assembly Hall, 
because it only cost nine dollars or nine pounds to hire it, and it was a public hall, uh, you know, so you could invite people. So, which we did, and we put a little ad. <laughs> I wish I had it. A little ad about that big in the Herald or the Age, the Argus. No, the Argus had had it by then. The Age or the. Anyway, we put this little ad in. And we had over 100 people turned up. We got the shock of our lives because we didn't have a network. We didn't have anything. So anyway, 100 people came, including two women who'd been involved in the first conscription, including Dorothy Gibson, who uh, was a member of the Communist Party, and uh, the wife of Ralph Gibson, who was also a communist. And I think Nancy Walsh was another one of that era. And so they talked about how important it was and how, how it had been a battle that was won. And I've always, you know, the, the most satisfying thing about the anti-conscription movement was that it had a beginning and a middle and an end, and we actually won. Because when you look at other issues like nuclear and, uh, well, dozens of the environment, all these things. You have struggles, you get bigger, and then it dies down, but we've, we've never actually had a final winning. Mm. And they're bigger issues in some ways, but this was really life and death. So 100 people turned up, and we discussed the possibility of the name and uh, they said that at the same time that we had our meeting, the little meeting, there was a meeting in Sydney and they had a little ad in the paper, a little thing in the paper, right up, that they'd formed a Save Our Sons movement. And so we decided that it would be better to have, look like we were bigger than we so, so we called it Save Our Sons. But it was a Victorian movement in those days, of course, you didn't have these magic phones and travel was expensive and you couldn't just fly up, fly to other states. So we it all did our own thing. We joined together to take a petition to Canberra mm. and we had one conference, I think, in, in Sydney that people came for. But basically it was a Melbourne organisation and at first it was just against conscription. And one of our members, our committee members, said she wasn't against the war in Vietnam, uh, but she was very much against conscription. Mm. She thought people should volunteer. And so we thought, rather than have an argument, <laughs> that we would accept something everybody could agree to. And Vilma Ames, her name was... But as the movement grew, it became obvious that the reason conscription was brought in was to send people to the war. And, and so even Vilma decided that, you know, that there were two sides of the coin. And so we then became more involved in opposing the war as well, and and especially as the war was shown on our television screens every night, and we saw 
Vietnamese women being burnt by these brave soldiers and, uh, you know, napalm and all that. So the anti-war side of the movement became as, well, not as important, but it, it highlighted why it was so wrong to force young people to war. As Jean says, there was already a group in Sydney by the name of Save Our Sons, very newly formed, but they can't really be seen as a nationally coordinated group in the way you might imagine in the 21st century, not least because interstate phone calls, let alone interstate travel, was very expensive. Save Our Sons is probably the group that's had the most focused research done on it with regard to women protesting against conscription and the Vietnam War. In 1984, Rosemary Francis wrote a thesis looking at both the Women's Peace Army, active in World War I, and at SOS. Then in 1991, Pauline Armstrong wrote a master's thesis on Save Our Sons, having herself been a committed member of the group in Melbourne. She contributed to the documentary I already mentioned about SOS, which came out in 1996. More recently, in 2021, came Carolyn Collins's book, Save Our Sons. It came out of her PhD, and she's done excellent work in making her research accessible to an ordinary reader. I highly recommend it to anyone interested in the protests of this era, as she looks at Save Our Sons from Perth to Sydney and everywhere else they existed. This podcast, of course, is only focused on Melbourne. The name might have been Save Our Sons, but the women involved weren't necessarily mothers of conscription-age boys. Cece, for instance, had a toddler, and Jean McLean's son was also not yet an adolescent. In fact, I found a letter from Mary Sticklin suggesting that actually some people in the organisation didn't love the name, but they were stuck with it because it had already been chosen by the Sydney group. We had we had a small number of people, who women mainly, who joined us and then their son didn't get called up and they'd leave. Mm. But in general, no. In general, uh, they might have been like me. I had a two-year-old son. And, and even if they joined because they wanted to protect their son, if he didn't get called up, they still, you know, by this time they were indoctrinated <laughs> to, to believe in the cause. Yes. It is true, though, that most of the women involved were at least middle-aged. Cece was probably the youngest in Melbourne, having been born in 1944, making her in her early 20s when she starts protesting. For comparison, Jean was a decade older, in her 30s, what that means in this context is that, sadly for me, many of these women had already died before I started my research. Women such as Dorothy Dalton, who, according to Pauline Armstrong's master's thesis, was a foundational member of SOS. In her case, I have been able to speak to her son, Tony, who was also a noted draft resistor. Do you think your mum would have got involved in SOS and so on if you, for instance, had been much younger or much older? I can't say. I mean, certainly my involvement was, yeah, it was a real spurt. 
and in some ways my involvement in because I'm older than my brother to start mm -hmm. with and he actually gets involved in other things he goes to Adelaide to do his university degree mm. which is very unusual and gets involved in what I'd call cultural politics as well oh, as okay. war stuff but so I'm really at the front line in, because partly because my age at the time but I think it's really my involvement that gets them going again politically. Yes, that's, that's my sense of it, is that my involvement in the anti-war movement and the conscription movement stimulates them. They'd been in the left, and I think my mother had probably been a member, mm. I think my mother had been a member of the Communist Party back in those days in East Melbourne. I, was, I knew I was on the side of the anti-Vietnam people. I must have met up with Jeannie somewhere and said, hey, I want to join you. <laughs> <laughs> and I loved the way that her SOS was really focusing on on the women who who would never have gone to an ALP meeting or a, or put themselves out in out in the front in any way. They were just ordinary people who were would have been very shy of, of that sort of activity. But they were passionate when they when they realised what could could happen to their sons or their mm. brothers or relatives or something. They were the ones I wanted to join for that reason. I thought it was wonderful that we were working with women who who just wanted to express themselves with that and that, that suited fitted with all, everything I sort of believed in. I became a solid yeah. SOS person for the next several years. <laughs> <laughs> That's Cece Cairns. In terms of other women and their reasons for joining, Joan Coxedge got involved through her local Labor Party because Jean and SOS tapped into that grassroots political organisation fairly early on. Another stalwart member was Irene Miller, who, in notes that appear to have been for a speech which she kept in her archival material, states that she joined in 1965 because she believed that fighting and war are a stupid way to settle differences, and also that it was a conflict that the Vietnamese should solve themselves. She also discusses the fact that she had worked as a civil ambulance driver in England during World War II, and therefore seeing the results of the German air raids. In another note, Irene Miller said that she moved to Australia because she was horrified at nuclear bomb shelters being planned in the UK and Australia seemed like a peaceful country to be instead. She also in those notes pointed out that members of SOS ranged in age from their 20s to their 70s, were single women, mums of young children and mums of conscription age and grandmothers as well. The newsletter was mailed to all Melbourne suburbs and even regional Victoria. Miller says the mailing list was up to 500 by 1970. The work that these women and others actually did was incredibly varied. In a book about Dorothy Gibson, who was a member of the Communist Party and involved in all sorts of political actions, as well as Save Our Sons, her husband, Ralph Gibson, remembered that Dorothy would regularly join the vigil outside the Swan Street barracks for every new intake of conscripts. He noted that this was incredibly hard in winter because of Dorothy's arthritis, 
but she did it anyway. And were um, you involved in the, um, uh, you know, being outside the barracks for the intake? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was terribly sad. That yeah. was one of the saddest things we did. That you just, you so often saw these young men, they looked like babies, you know, they were coming in, they, they were crying a lot of the time. Mm. I mean, the, what we saw was not what you think, you'd think. They came in with their families and a lot of them had girlfriends and they they were always drinking, you know, they were always the families were trying to get them to drink champagne or mm-hmm. something to make them feel better. But often they looked utterly, many of them, and of course they, we just stood there saying, well, you don't have to go join us and we'll get you out. Um, and of course no one ever did because by that stage, of course, it was impossible for them to realise that they there was another option. It, it was terribly sad. It was one of the saddest things you ever saw, these boys who didn't want to do it. You know, they didn't actually want to. It wasn't their choice. And they were they were crying. A lot of them were, had tears in their eyes and they looked miserable and the families were hugging them. and It was just horrible. I mean, there were some who were gung-ho, of course. Not all of them were like that, but enough of them were like that to make you realise that, that the common perception was... Um, You never saw that picture in the paper. (laughs) In an April 1970 newsletter, there's a reminder to subscribers about the upcoming intake at Swan Street Barracks, which says, quote, It is much easier to get up in the dark and come to town once every 12 weeks than to go to Vietnam and get shot. Every member protesting makes it more meaningful. Perhaps my very favourite story of an SOS action comes from Cece Cairns. Am I right in thinking that it was you with Jean McLean on in the fashions on the field? Oh yes, that was another that was another hilarious um, story. Well, we had a committee, and we we're always trying to think up ideas of what to do, and I can't remember exactly who came up with it at first, but it. it Someone came up with the idea. I can't remember who it was. Maybe it was Jeannie. But we we had marvellous women on the committee. Um, Joe McLean Cross, I think, was the person. Everything that we wore that day was handmade by our committee. They they made the dresses. They made the hats. We bought shoes and and dyed them orange, I think. (laughs) And we made the capes and, and painted the signs on the back. And the idea was that we, we, we thought no one would take any notice of it. I mean, the main, the main thing about it was that we were copying, um, who was the model from the year before? Not Twiggy, someone like that, though, yes. someone quite famous, yes, who came to the Melbourne Cup and wore a skirt halfway up her thighs. You know, it was like longer than a, a real mini skirt. And she was sort of in the press and it was a great drama and everything and we thought oh well we'll just go a bit shorter and just go up you know up to the sort of almost up to the crutch so one of the, I remember one of the things I had to do was find some stockings we could wear and in those days there were no pantyhose there was one I've searched Melbourne for pantyhose because you had to have pantyhose if you were wearing a really short skirt you couldn't have <laughs> suspenders <laughs> and I finally found these 
quite thick, funny old pantyhose that no one would dream of wearing these days. I mean, they looked all right, so that's what we wore. So that was interesting that, you know, pantyhose had barely been invented. And then we went on thinking we'd be just pretty ordinary in the in the crowd, but we were hoping that because we were a bit exotic wearing a matching clothes that we'd go into some sort of competition that people kept saying, oh, yes, you know, you, yeah. you'll, you'll make it, you know. So we had these mad homemade gear on and... <laughs> And as soon as we stepped out onto the, the cup place where yep. you walk around, we, we started being photographed <laughs> and we couldn't believe it. And everyone was taking our photographs and we realised we were the only people there with sh- really short skirts. That was why they were photographing us. They were photographing us because we showed our legs and if you, and the other bizarre thing was that the men, they were all men. At one stage we found we were, a circle of men were around us lying on the ground with their cameras so they could get um, sexy pictures of whatever, which, you know, you couldn't see a thing. But, <laughs> you know, it was kind of their idea of getting these outrageous pictures. And we just said, we can't, we can't go on like this. We mm. can't go on being photographed for this reason. This is bizarre. <laughs> But the, fun, the other funny thing was we did think, we, we thought we'd get, we were going to be up on some pedestal before we took our, turned our cloaks around. So we never dreamt we'd be turning them around in the crowd. And because there was such a sense of goodwill around and they were all laughing with us and thinking we were hysterical and everything and we were laughing with them, and we just changed our cloaks around. Just a note here, Jean and Cece's cloaks read together, said, gamble on horses, not with lives, and stop the war in Vietnam. And everyone noticed it, and they and these people came up and said, oh, that's interesting, good on you, or <laughs> what are you doing, or no one abused us or was rude or unpleasant. It mm. was the most extraordinarily bizarre experience. Experience. <laughs> it was really bizarre. That's really <laughs> and awesome. again, we didn't. I mean, I did. I suppose I felt. I probably did feel afraid. I mean, you felt courageous. You know, you're doing this bizarre thing. You're standing out there all alone. We had no, no. We had. I think we had one person, Joe McLean Cross. I think was with us carrying our handbags for us, <laughs> so we could pose. Quite mad. It was quite mad. It was a good experience. It got the best press of almost anything we did was amazing and when I got home my this was before I was a single mother my mother-in-law uh rang me up and said oh she said how dare you call yourself oh she said thank goodness you've called yourself by your maiden name I would never want the name O'Brien besmirched with your behavior so you know that that was the worst Worst thing I had was was from my mother-in-law, <laughs> which was a bit funny too. Then there's the time Joan Coxedge was involved in a protest at a Billy Graham event. Billy Graham was a noted American Christian evangelist who was strongly in favour of the war in Vietnam. One of the things that I have never forgotten, you might have heard about this, was... Uh, demonstration uh, against Billy Graham. God, well, it was only a handful of us that turned up. Most of them wouldn't have a bar. There was a hardcore of us, if you like. We was a 
I think that you have to admit there was a hardcore. I was in that, of course. <laughs> and uh, he had a crusade held at the Maya Music Bowl. We thought, well, he was very close to Richard Nixon, very pro-war, fair target, we'll have a go. And then, of course, to do that, we met um, in St Kilda Road. I remember that, feeling fairly apprehensive. And we had our placards and we marched and, and they were all praying or doing something, I can't remember really, but I think they were all praying. He was up there on the stage going for his life, as Billy Graham does, because I can't stand the man, but anyway, that's beside the point. We walked up behind him and held up our placards. Nobody said a word. Not a sound was said. He ignored us completely. He could have heard a pin drop, and we were just holding up these things behind him. It didn't move a muscle. Not a muscle. And so we just stood there for a while and then we quietly filed out again and stood there at the back and waited till they all came out and then some of them were saying, you know, what was all that about sort of thing? You think, you dull cretins, can't you read? You know, we made it very clear it was anti-war and stuff like that, but he was the master of the group. Formidable, very formidable, but that was one I won't forget in a hurry because I can remember yep. the silence. I can remember the absolute silence. And we didn't say anything. We weren't chanting or doing anything. We just held up our signs. We decided in advance that we wouldn't try and disrupt it, mm. that we just make a peaceful protest. And that was it. Aside from the more flashy events, there was a lot of work to be done on the ground too. Uh, were you involved in the more mundane things like handing out pamphlets and oh god yeah all the time yeah absolutely in fact that's what it was and that's i mean for instance we used to meet on the on the library steps outside the melbourne library in swanson street and every i can't remember if every week or every month few of us met there with us with a sign saying anti-Vietnam War, stop the draft or whatever it was, join us. And we met there week after week after week for I don't know how long. Mm. I mean, it seemed like years. And occasionally someone had come up, you know, we'd meet someone. But most of the time we just did it. I learnt how long it takes to... You know that movement was a was a movement, but my God, it it, it didn't build up to the moratorium quickly. It was or that kind of drudgery that we we just did that gradually built up to the huge moratoriums. That's how it is, you know. And I'm now working with Get Up. I do stuff mm. with Get Up every now and again, and a lot of people seem to think it's all going to happen instantly, <laughs> like saying, "Oh well, in my day, <laughs> we stood on the steps." <laughs> Well, I've got here, you know, we wrote letters, of course. Mm. We organised petitions and fundraisers. We held, held lunchtime rallies in Melbourne's former city square. That's the, you know, next door to the town hall in Collins yep. Street, which is now God knows what. <laughs> and we used to hard, hard, walk around and around holding placards, looking very respectable, which used to irritate me a little bit because some of the women even had hats. And I thought, oh, good God, you can carry that one too far. You know, but anyway... <laughs> But I think often I read get... somewhere about was that Irene Miller was saying something about hats and gloves so that they'd look 
Maybe it wasn't Irene who said that. Somebody else said something Somebody about... Somebody did say something. Put your hats and gloves on so that yeah, we look I respectable. Didn't. I wasn't into hats and gloves, <laughs> so I just walked around as I was. But anyway, um, and you did get a lot of abuse. You get, you get, it's incredible. You'd get some of these well-dressed men in their business suits coming up and saying, you should be crucified. This was Easter time. And I thought, oh, my God, that's not very nice, you know. And you just kept walking and marching. But that was the level of animosity in the early stages. Wow. Now, sure, that, that mellowed, but in the early stages, God help us, it was, you know, you just didn't know what you were likely to get. Amongst the papers saved by Irene Miller... There are things like letters to mothers' clubs offering speakers for their meetings, as well as pamphlets about not registering for national service and ads for various fundraising events. All of these were written by members of SOS and distributed by them. Pauline Armstrong, in her master's thesis, noted that activities included organising teach-ins, writing to newspapers fundraising for SOS and for other groups, counselling conscientious objectors, and many other things. SOS were involved in organising a petition to the Prime Minister in May 1966, and in her thesis, Armstrong says that the Victorian SOS group were responsible for collecting 14,000 of the 17,000 signatures. Some of the funds raised by SOS were for things like court cases for draft resistors and other people who were arrested or fined. In the April 1969 newsletter, Mrs Zab, mother of John Zab, a famous conscientious objector, sends, quote, her thanks to SOS for the money raised and sent to her for legal fees incurred by her son's court appeal. In hindsight, probably the most significant event that got SOS the most attention was the jailing of the Fairley Five, so-called because Fairley was the women's prison in Melbourne. In April 1971, five women entered the Department of Labour and National Service building. They were there to hand out anti-conscription leaflets. The Tribune, a Sydney-based communist newspaper, described them this way. Mrs Joan McLean Cross, 47, President of the Victorian ALP Women's Organisation. Mrs Jean McLean, 35, Secretary Save Our Sons, Vice President, Victorian Vietnam Moratorium Committee, Vice President, Victorian ALP Women's Organisation. Mrs Reenie Miller, that's Irene Miller, 50, Committee Member, Save Our Sons, Mrs Joan Coxedge, 40, Executive Member, Victorian ALP Women, and Mrs Chris Cathy, 36, Executive Member, Victorian ALP Women, and wife of former Labor MLC, Mr Ian Cathy. I'll actually put a link to this article on my website because the article includes statements from all five women that are quite fascinating to read. Certainly, when we went to jail, was a very effective thing. It upset people profoundly that five women with all these children were sent to jail. That was a very, very important, if you like, um, watershed. It was a very important watershed in the whole anti-war movement. That upset them. Five women, you had really with ten bloody kids or something, you had a head start. I think Joe McLean Cross had five. 
uh, Chris Cathy had four, I had three, and Jean had two. So we, between a lot of us, there are a lot of children, lot of children. And the anti-war movement came behind us, and the trade union movement did, mm. and very effective there. And I think there were a few stoppages at the waterfront over that. And so I guess you got sort of a lot of publicity out of that. A lot of publicity. And that was yeah. luck too because um, it was held, the court case came up on the Thursday before Easter and it dragged on and on and on. And we were at the magistrate's court waiting for the damn thing to come on and nothing was happening. And it didn't come on until about four o'clock in the afternoon before Easter. And of course all the media had gone except for one ABC journalist, except for one. And he was there and he reported it, and that's when it got out. Now, it was sheer luck, because he could have gone, and then, I don't know, that it would have got out, but not like it did. It yeah. ended up on the, you know, seven o'clock news. And that really helped, and the others picked up on it, and away it went. Yeah. Irene Miller's ephemera included telegrams of support that she and the others received during and after their stay at Fairley which included telegrams from people like the previous federal Labor leader... Arthur Corwell. Finally, I asked many of my interviewees who weren't in the group whether they had heard of SOS. Many of them hadn't or had forgotten about them in the intervening years. Some of them, though, had very strong memories of the group in general or Jean in particular. Did you think what SOS was doing was an important contribution? Well, yes, because... It was part of the way in which conscription and war became an issue not just for a handful of 20-year-old young men but for a broad swathe of society. They were the first obvious demonstrations done by women Mm. By, I mean, by anybody, but they were women, you know, with chaining themselves to the conscription gates and all mm. of that sort of stuff. They were really terrific. And they did, they went to jail, didn't they? They did, they had mm. 14 days, the fairly mm. fine. Mm. Yeah, I mean, yeah. ours was three nights or something and it was pretty insignificant, really, but 15 days is a long time. Save Our Sons was extremely important. Mm. I don't think that, I mean, Save Our Sons made it acceptable and even necessary for ordinary Australians and including ordinary Australian women who've been brought up to, you know, never talk about politics, never talk about sex at the dinner table, etc. It made it not only possible but acceptable and important for Australian women to get involved. So they were very important. Yes, I personally thought they were very effective. There might have been some people in the Labor Club that, again, as I said, um, probably saw them as a middle-class bourgeois movement but wouldn't have come out and opposed them but didn't really take them that seriously. Mm. Um, I think they were very effective in, especially when they went to jail for their principles. Um, I think I think they were respected because they were prepared to go to jail um, and it was an issue that mothers could relate to. The fact that they were mothers, it was a very effective campaign. 
And I think it was very much a... I don't know if that happened overseas, but certainly it got a lot of publicity here in Melbourne. For her master's thesis, Pauline Armstrong spoke to Jim Cairns, who had been one of the key members of the anti-Vietnam protests and went on to be Deputy Prime Minister under Gough Whitlam after 1972. He said, quote, The input by all women, and the SOS women specifically, was of inestimable value. The SOS movement had been a driving and consistent force in the anti-conscription and anti-war movements since 1965. Armstrong herself reflected that SOS, quote, must without doubt have exerted some influence on the public consciousness. It was certainly attracting the attention of those in authority. I'll give the last word to Jean McLean about why she thinks SOS was effective. But no, I think our movement was very successful and it was successful in part because they couldn't really label us, you know. We started off being naive. No, first we were communists, then they decided we weren't. Then we were naive and finally they decided that we were respectable middle-class middle women who objected <laughs> So, yeah, so when we'd sit down, we'd always made decisions together of what action. And when we decided we'd sit down at a demonstration place and refuse to move, they'd have to pick us up. But we never, we never fought them. It's always so non-violent. Mainly because it's the most effective way of doing things. We didn't put people off. We, we had people joining us all the time. I read somewhere that you had 500 members by the end of it and you had lots of other people who were supporting you. I mean, some of the the stuff that I've read around when you were in Fairley is simply incredible, mm. the 24-hour mm. vigils and so on. What do you think made SOS so attractive? I think it was because we made our message clear. We spoke about what was wrong with forcing young men who couldn't even vote old enough to vote to go and fight in a war in a country where people didn't even know where it was, you know? Thanks for listening to this episode of Women, Conscription and War. If you enjoyed it, maybe you could tell someone else about it or leave a review somewhere to help other people find it. My immense thanks to all the people I spoke to for this episode. You can find a complete list of them on my website, womenconscriptionwar.com, as well as a bibliography and some relevant images. My thanks also to Sarah Tomasetti, who gave permission to use her mother Glenn Tomasetti's music in this project. It's a moment from her song, The Ballad of William White, that you hear between sections throughout this podcast.